You're listening to the RUF at Western Carolina University podcast. RUF is a campus ministry that exists to reach students for Christ and to equip them to serve Christ, His church, and His world. For more information, follow us on Instagram. We're at RUFATWCU or look us up online at www.ruf.org. Thanks for listening. All right, if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Psalm 1, or you can just open up your handout, and it's printed for you in there. Uh, One of the things that we do every week at RUF is we open the Word together uh, and talk about what it means for uh, who God is, what it means for our lives, what it means for how we live uh, in relationship with Him. Uh, This semester, we're going to be going through the book of Genesis Uh, But what I always do at the beginning of the year, because I know there's a lot of new folks here and you're asking a question like, never heard of RUF before I showed up at orientation or Valley Valley who, uh, what is RUF? Why should I be a part of it? And really you're asking the question, should I come back? Um, So I wanna try and help you answer that question. Should you come back? Um, I hope that you do. I love RUF. I think it's awesome. I've worked for it for, this is my seventh year as campus minister. I was an intern for two years. I think it's a fantastic ministry. Um, and thanks for coming and giving me a chance to tell you why. Uh, before we look at, uh, read Psalm chapter one, or I guess Psalm number one, um, I want to tell you about uh, a cool spot outside of Blacksburg, Virginia. When I was an RUF intern, uh, I was at Virginia Tech and a similar place to this. It's in the mountains. It's close to the Appalachian Trail, it's close to the Blue Ridge Parkway, good local music, lots of good hiking. Uh, And if you went towards Newport, Virginia, uh, and you parked on the side of just a random state highway where the Appalachian Trail crossed, you could walk north for about a mile, and you would come to what's called the Keffer Oak. I'm curious, I've I've talked to a couple people who are from Blacksburg. Has anybody ever been to the Keffer Oak? It is the second largest tree on the Appalachian Trail. It's the largest tree on the southern section. Uh, and, and as we were hiking there to find it, um, we kind of, we'd go along the trail and we'd see a tree and it was like, is that it? And we're not sure. And so we keep going. It's like, is that it? We're not sure. But when you come to the Keffer Oak, there's no question left that you have found what you're looking for. Because you come around this bend and there's this kind of open pasture, this open field and in the corner of it is a 60 foot tall white oak tree. For reference, the climbing wall in the campus rec center is 50 feet tall. Right? So this oak tree is taller than the climbing wall. It's 19 and a half feet around, which means it would take four people holding hands to encircle this tree. The, the branches of this tree are as big as normal trees. Like you, you walk and it's one of those like tricks of distance things where you think you're close to it and you keep walking towards it and it hasn't changed in size because your brain doesn't know what to do with the enormity of this three hundred year old tree and when you go and you see it like if you've ever been around something that's both that old and alive there's just this like weird sense of stability that comes like this tree has been here so much longer than I have and it will be here long after I'm gone right there's something like peaceful and settling about the kefir oak that's the picture that I want you to have in your mind as I read Psalm 1 because that's the vision that the psalmist has for us, that we would be like that tree, that when people see us, they would say, it's like, wow, there's, there's something weighty, there's something peaceful, there's something constant here. And we're going to look at Psalm 1 and see what that is. Psalm 1 starts out, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray, and we'll talk about what that means. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth that it reveals to us about who you are, who we are, and what you've done to bring us back to yourself. As we look at this psalm this evening, I pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to see your heart for us, uh, what you would have us become as we're nourished by your word. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So you probably noticed it as I read the psalm, or maybe you've seen it in your own study, or you've heard a sermon on it before, but, but this psalm lays before us kind of two options, two approaches to life, two paths. There's three stanzas that are each made up of two verses, and each of these stanzas will like tease out another layer of this contrast, another difference between these two paths. We could call them the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. The psalmist starts in in the first two verses asking a question. Who are you listening to? What company are you keeping? And the answer distinguishes these two paths at the start. He starts off, blessed is the man who doesn't do this, but does this instead. Blessed is that good Bible word for happy, for whole, for wise, for favored by God. So what do we need to do to be happy and whole and healthy and wise and favored by God? Well, who are you listening to? First, the warning. Blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Wicked, sinners, scoffers, it's poetry, they use synonyms. They're all words that kind of mean the same thing. Right? Those who have rejected God's rule and rejected God's ways. Ultimately, those who have rejected God himself. Because right? the problem with the wicked is not that, that what they do, it's that they don't, want any, they don't want it to have anything to do with God himself. So the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers, they're the ones set up in opposition to God. But what we can notice about verse 1 is this progression that happens. Notice the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There's this progression of familiarity, of association, of of connection, or even camaraderie. And and you can kind of see this on campus, right? Maybe you've experienced this yourself. Maybe you've observed other people do it. Imagine you're on your way to class, and you bump into an acquaintance who's kind of heading the same direction as you. They're going to a different building, but for now, you're walking together, right? You'll walk alongside, chit-chat, what class are you headed to? How was your summer? Like, what are you doing for dinner? All that kind of stuff. And then when one of you gets to the building you're going to, you'll go inside, and the other person will continue on their way, right? But say you're on your way to that same class, and you see not an acquaintance, but a friend, right? And you start walking with this friend, and you're catching up with them, and you get to the point where one person needs to go in a building, and instead of just cutting the conversation off wherever it happens to be, you'll stand, And you'll talk and you'll finish your conversation because there's affection, there's association between the two of you. But even more, say you're on your way to class and you run into a friend that you haven't seen in a really long time. 
Or maybe they had an internship last semester, or they studied abroad last year, and it's the first time that you've seen them. You are not going to that class, right? Let's go get lunch. Let's get in the car and go to cookout or go drive the parkway, right? You're going to sit down with them and catch up because there's affection and, and, and intimacy there. That's the picture of verse 1, this kind of increasing connection to, association with people who are set up in opposition to God. And that's how it happens, right? If, if you've grown up in the church, if you're a Christian here tonight, and whatever your story is, like, probably you're not going to wake up tomorrow morning and say, I don't think I want to do the Christianity thing anymore, right? You're not going to flip a switch like that. But what does happen is that you get outside of your normal place, you get outside of your normal rhythms, and you start this process of walking, and then standing, and then sitting. And before you know it, you wake up and you don't recognize the terrain around you. You ask, how did I get here? That's the subtlety of this attraction that evil has. And Psalm 1 wants to warn us away from that and instead push us towards verse 2. That our delight would be in the law of the Lord. And on his law we would meditate day and night. Verse 2 describes the path to blessing. Right? Scripture is what's being listened to. God's word is the company that's being kept. It's delighted in. It's seen as valuable and beautiful. It's meditated upon, which is not an emptying of the mind in Scripture, but instead filling it with a verse, a phrase, a concept, a, a, an attribute of God. Eugene Peterson talks about meditation on Scripture as, like, picture a dog working on a bone, right? Like, they're just going to sit there and gnaw on it and get everything they can out of it. They're going to turn it over, they're going to eat some of it, and they're going to go bury it and think about it and then come back and find it later and chew on it some more. That's this picture of meditation. That's the picture of delight that God wants us to have towards his word. But here's the question. Why is that the way to blessing? Right? We tend to miss this question, I think, in the Christian life. If you're a Christian tonight, or even if you're not, you're not a Christian tonight, like, you know that one of the things Christians do is they read the Bible, right? Like Christians make a big deal about this thing called the Bible. And, and, and maybe you're really good at reading the Bible. Maybe you are faithful in your devotional life and you have a solid habit of quiet times, and that's incredible and a great blessing. And please, please continue that, right? That is a gift that God has given you that I want you to enjoy. But more often I've found that, that we're not very good at this delighting in the word and meditating on God's word, right? We, we struggle to find time to read the word, and when we do open it, we struggle to be engaged, right? And we'll finally sit down for a quiet time, open our Bible, and then 10 minutes later realize I'm staring at the same verse and I haven't read it yet because I'm worried about this class or this relationship or the situation or this conflict. Whichever side you fall on, Right? Whether you've faithfully had a quiet time since you learned how to read, or whether you don't know where your Bible is right now, one of the things that I think often happens for us is we, we fall into this misconception about what the Word is for. And it's subtle, but here it is. Reading the Bible is not the point of the Christian life. I'll say that again. Reading the Bible is not the point of the Christian life. Well, Andrew, what is the point of the Christian life? I'm glad you asked. The point of the Christian life is that we would enjoy God and bring glory to him. Right? That's why we were made. We're made in his image to reflect him, to be in relationship with him. And that's why we read the word. Right? Because that's the means through which we grow in our enjoyment of God. 
right? Reading the Bible is just a means to an end. It's a means to relationship with God, and that's where blessing is, right? So the blessing of Psalm 1 comes not from our devotion to the Word, but because it puts us in contact with the God of the Word. It's like conversation in a marriage, right? Every once in a while, me and Trish will be apart for several days because I've got to go to staff training or, you know, a denominational meeting, or she takes the girls to visit friends or family, and whenever that happens, we just don't talk as much as we normally do, right? We're we're distanced from one another. When the girls finally go to bed, she's there with family and wants to talk to them instead, which is fine. I get it. Um, does that mean we're any less married when we haven't talked for a couple days? No, of course not, right? Our marriage is a fact, and it's not conditional on whether or not we had a long chat that day or the night before. Our enjoyment of the relationship might be affected by our communication in those times, right? But, but not the fact of our marriage. Right? I mean, we didn't get married so that we could have conversations, right? We did plenty of that before we were married, right? We got married for the tax credits. No, <laughs> no. We, of course we got married because we're in, we were in love with one another. We still are, and we wanted to enjoy life together, right? You didn't become a Christian because you wanted to read the Bible, right? You became a Christian because of the love of God pursuing you and changing your heart and opening your eyes to see his goodness and his beauty, and you wanted to enjoy life with him. And scripture conversation with God is the way that we strengthen that relationship. That's where the blessing comes from. So what does this have to do with RUF? Well, here's what we want you to do. We want you to grow in your enjoyment of God as you see his beauty in the word. We want you to read the Bible, and we want you to like really understand it. We want you to live it out, but not so you can check a box off a list, not so you can feel good about, like, I've established a habit of quiet time. No, we want you to do that so that you can know the God of the Bible, to love him and enjoy him. That's the first stanza. That's what RUF is about. We want you to see the beauty of Jesus in Scripture as you listen to the voice of God in his word. But the psalmist goes on in verses 3 and 4. He says this, and here's this picture of a tree from earlier. Uh, The blessed man, the one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it, he is like a tree who's planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. If our first stanza asks the question, who are you listening to? Who are you associating with? This stanza, verses 3 and 4, asks the question, what kind of people are found on these ways? What are you like? Who are you becoming? First, the way of the righteous, the blessed way, is that picture of a tree. And the psalmist says that that tree is like one that's planted by streams of water. I don't know how much gardening you've ever done in your life, But kind of rule number one is that plants need water to survive, right? Even cactuses, don't overwater your succulents, but like they need some water to survive. And what better source of water than a stream, right? This continually fresh supply of water that's not going to get stagnant or, or, or just nasty because it's sitting still in the sun all day long. That stream is going to keep the soil nice and moist so that roots can soak up all the moisture It's cooler by streams, and so the tree won't be scorched and withered by the heat of the day. The point is, delighting in the word of God and meditating on it is like having a constant source of life running next to you, 
running through you. But look at the result of that. It yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. There's fruitfulness, right? There's benefit to those around you, right? Because a, a tree might produce fruit only for itself so that it can, you know, have more baby trees out there, but, but all the animals of the forest benefit from a fruitful tree and the life and fruit and nourishment that it provides. The leaves don't wither. There's life and there's endurance there. Overall, this is a picture of permanence and steadiness. There's like the best kind of predictability here, right? It's not, it's not boredom, but like dependability. There's wisdom here and peace, right? Like when you're walking through the woods or when you're walking somewhere and you see a nice sturdy tree by a stream of water, don't you kind of want to find a hammock or like lay out a blanket or just lay on the grass and take a nap because it's so peaceful and restful? That's what the psalmist wants for us. He wants us to be like this tree planted by streams of water. And he contrasts that with the wicked in verse 4. The other path, the way of the wicked, those who reject God's and his ways, the psalmist describes them as chaff. Now, chaff, maybe you've heard this explained, maybe you haven't. I'm going to give it just in case. Um, When you grow wheat, um, you plant the seed and you wait, right? Maybe you water, maybe you weed. But really, you can't do anything until it's full grown. And when wheat is full grown, at the top of the stalk, there's a kernel and a husk, right? The kernel's the good stuff, like corn, right? Corn on the cob. The husk is just kind of there to protect it, but you don't need it once, like, it's it's done growing and developing. So when you harvest wheat, what you do is you go through the fields and you cut down all the stalks and you just leave them to dry in the sun. And what happens is that husk around the kernel dries and starts to get flaky and you know, it just, it, it peels off. But rather than go around and like peel off each individual husk, off each individual kernel of wheat, what they would do is after a few days of it drying in the sun, they'd gather it all together and they'd wait for a windy day and they'd take all of these stalks, all of these kernels and husks and kind of rub them together to loosen everything up and then throw it up in the air. And the wind would blow away the husk, which is now called chaff, And the kernel, which is like life and nourishment and gluten, and you can turn it into flour, like that, falls back down because it's weighty, right? Because it's got some life and substance to it. That chaff is the husk that dries away and isn't good for anything. In contrast to the steadiness of a tree, you've got this insubstantial chaff. They're only as predictable as the wind, which is to say they're not predictable at all, right? There's no substance just a dried husk. No life, no fruit, just a protective shell that has served its purpose and just needs to blow away. You see the contrast here? Which would you rather be? Right? How would you rather be known? As one who walks the way of the righteous, delighting in Scripture, make, making a steady and life-giving and, again, the best kind of predictable, or the way of the wicked, insubstantial, dry, without weight, no steadiness, What does this have to do with RUF? Well, again, what do we want you to do? We want you to see the beauty of Jesus in Scripture as you listen to the voice of God and his word. Because this is who we want you to become, a fruitful tree nourished not by your own strength, but by the living water of Scripture. We want you to see the beauty of Jesus in Scripture as you listen to the voice of God and his word so that you would become this fruitful tree nourished not by your own strength, but by the living water of Scripture.
Last little bit for the psalm in verses 5 and 6. Again, we've got these two paths, and here's the verdict about them. The psalmist is asking the question, where are you headed? Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The first stanza asked, who are you listening to? The second asked, what are you like? Who are you becoming? And this final stanza asks, where are you headed? And here we can be really brief because the psalmist strips away all of the imagery and the metaphor and he comes out and he says it plain. The way of the wicked will perish. They will not stand in the end. But the Lord knows the way to the righteous. And I love the way the psalmist puts it, right? Because it, ultimately it's not about the righteous. The comfort there is that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Even here, the hope of the righteous is not that, that they have walked the path well, but that the Lord knows their path, that he sees and notices and guides, right? It's not like he, he saves us and sets us on the path and says, hope you make it, hope I see you on the other side. No, he's the shepherd who leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. Again, what do we want you to do? We want you to see the beauty of Jesus in Scripture as you listen to the voice of God and his word. Because this is who you want, we want you to become, a fruitful tree nourished not by your own strength, but by the living water of Scripture. And this is what we want you to hope in. Not your efforts, not your goodness, but the fact that the Lord knows your way. Now, there's a problem with all this, right? We've got this contract, contrast, this back and forth throughout the whole psalm. You've got on one side the righteous, who's like a tree, Right, this picture of stability and rootedness and permanence with the defining quality of his delight is in the law of the Lord. And you've got the wicked on the other side, right? The, from, from walking to standing to sitting, resulting uncertainty and chaffness of the wicked. But that's the problem, right? Because we're on the wrong side of that contrast, right? We're not on the path of the righteous. We don't perfectly delight in the law of the Lord, right? Who of us can say deep down 100% that our delight is in the law of the Lord, right? Maybe we ignore the word because the busyness of life creeps in and we're not very self-disciplined. Maybe we pridefully think that we can get through life on our own. Thank you very much. I don't need the word. Or maybe we avoid the word because we know that if we really engage with it, we're going to have some explaining to do. And even if we aspire to that delight, to delight in the law of the Lord, who of us can say that its instructions characterize the way that we live, right? Especially when you get behind our actions and start looking at our hearts and our motivation, right? Have you ever done that? Like, why was I nice to that person? Because I genuinely love them or because I love me and I want other people to think that I'm a helpful person, Right? Like it's scary when you start asking those questions because you realize that even our best deeds are, are tainted with selfish motivations. Who of us can say that the character of a Christian is fully realized in us? That we are perfectly loving, perfectly patient, forgiving and joyful and honoring to our professors and our parents and self-controlled and, and on and on and on. We are all of us on the wrong path. This psalm describes all of us, but in the way of the wicked. Except for one person, right? There was a man who did perfectly delight in the law of the Lord and who proved it by obeying it fully and perfectly. 
There's one who was steady and nourishing and life-giving to those around him, even his enemies. Right? Consider Jesus, the way that he leaned on Scripture, that he meditated on it, even when tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Right? Satan says, like, throw yourself off this building and, and like, make God save you, or, or bow down to me and all the peoples of the earth will call you great. And how does Jesus respond? Don't you know what the Bible says? Haven't, haven't you read God's word? Like, Satan, you should, you should know better than this. Think about Jesus, what he says in the high priestly prayer that's his hope for the disciples, right? He prays to God, his Father, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. Or what he tells the crowds in the Sermon on the Mount, that he's come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? Jesus has such a high view of Scripture that he says, like, all of this is about me, and I'm here to, like, open it even more for you. Jesus perfectly delights in, perfectly listens to, and perfectly follows Scripture, which should make us ask a question, why does only the first half of this psalm seem to apply to him? Right? In other words, if this psalm is ultimately about Jesus and his delight in Scripture and his steadiness and his life-giving presence, what do we do with verse 6? Right? The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Right? How can we say that this is about Jesus because he perished, right? And I thought only the wicked perished. What do we do with verse 3, right? How can we say that he prospered? He was killed, right? That's the opposite of prospered. To use the image of the tree, he was cut down. And here's the good news of the gospel. He was cut down so that you and I wouldn't be, right? As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, God made him to be sin. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, Itself, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? Jesus' perfect love of Scripture, his perfect obedience to Scripture, right, put on us. And our rebellions, our waywardness put on him. In the words of Isaiah, we all like sheep have gone astray, each on our own way. Right? We're out, out there following our own paths, following our own instincts. But the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity, the sin of us all. All of our waywardness, all of our big rejections of God's ways and our little rejections of God's ways and, and ultimately the times where we reject God himself, all of that put on Jesus and all his perfection, all his goodness put on us. So at RUF, here's what we want for you. We want you to see the beauty of Jesus in scripture as you listen to the voice of God and his word because we want you to become like a fruitful tree Nourished not by your own strength, but by the living water of Scripture. And we want you to hope, not in your efforts or your goodness, but that the Lord knows your way. And because that's what we want for you, therefore we will tell you over and over and over again about the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm going to do every week as we open the Bible at large group and see what God has to say about who we are, who he is, what he's done to bring us back to himself. We're going to ask the question, what does the salvation that God has given to us as a gift, how does it impact the way that we live? Right? We're going to take the good news of the grace of God and work it into as many aspects of our lives as we can. That's what RUF is about. We want you to know deep down the love of God for you in the person of Jesus Christ. We want you to know his grace and his welcome and his compassion and his mercy. And because you know that, we want that to result in you delighting in the law of the Lord. 
seeking to know his word, to meditate on it, to chew it, and, and get it not just into your mind, but into your heart so that it, it comes out of you and nourishes those around you. It comes out of you and makes you steady. Ultimately, so that it points you to the God of Scripture and you enjoy a fruitful relationship with him. That's why we open the Bible every week at large group. That's why we study the Bible in small groups, talk about it in community groups. That's why if we meet with you one-on-one as staff, like we're going to talk about the Bible and how it applies to your life. That's why we want you guys together with one another to talk about the Bible together. Not because it's the point of the Christian life, but because it puts us in conversation with our Creator, with our King, with our Redeemer, with our Defender, our Father, our Friend, the One who loves us and gave himself up for us. Let's pray, and then we'll sing one more song. Father, again, we thank you for your word and the truth that it reveals to us about who you are, who we are, and what you've done to bring us back to yourself. Father, we confess that this psalm does not describe us. As much as we might want it to, uh, we struggle to delight in your law. We struggle to delight in your word. Father, we tend to go our own way or seek advice and input from, from any source, it seems, but you. And Father, when it comes to meditating, we are so distracted. Uh, other things call our attention away. But Father, as we've looked at the psalm, help us to see not our own failures, but, but Christ and his goodness and his perfection. Help that, Father, to, to call us to newness of life, to call us to relationship with you and, and to be in conversation in that relationship through the scripture and through prayer. And Father, as you do that, as we do that, would you make us like trees? planted by streams of water that yield their fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and all that we do we prosper, not because we're so good, but because we're in relationship with the God who loves us and made us his own. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.